and welcome to the last episode of Hard Copy for the year 2022. I'm Maokwe Yusuf. And what a year it's been for us here on the team at Hard Copy. It's been a pleasure bringing you candid and forthright conversations sparked by the unfolding events of the year. On our final episode for this year, we bring you some of the highlights of the year 2022, helping to summarize some of the unfinished business of the year with an intention to put into perspective the issues that should shape not only our decision at the polls next year, but also to the trajectory which we must always keep in perspective long after the polls have been concluded. The first for us is the issue of security. Although security remains a going concern, very early on in the year, it showed that it was an issue that needed immediate attention as two local governments in Zamfara came under severe attacks, leading to the death of 58 people. Not long after, the governor of Borno announced that two local governments in his state were under the control of ISWAP, and the governor of Niger State made the startling revelation that within the month of January alone, bandits killed over 200 people in about 50 attacks. 25 of those murdered were security operatives. The director of the Nigerian Army Resource Center explained what he believed had gone awry. That, that had happened in the Northeast. That was what was happening in, in Borno State where Boko Haram at one point was controlling 21 or 22 local governments, and they were collecting taxes from people. Up to those who are in Abuja, if a father has a son working in Abuja, he pays more than those who don't have anybody outside the state. It happened until the areas were liberated. And so that's exactly what's happening all over. And it is part of failure of, of government and part of inability of us to work as a team. I will keep on mentioning that. If you do, some of these things will, be, will, will not be there. But a situation where it's not my concern, it doesn't, it's not affecting me. So let those affect, let them do whatever they need to do. It's going to continue to increase if we don't do something about it. Police are supposed to be living within the community where they serve, but gradually, we are, we are virtually pushing all police stations, or police barracks, or police whatever, out of rural communities. There's only rural communities in the, in the north central area now that you can have police, police posts. Mm. The governor of um, Niger State did mention that 4,000 policemen, he said, uh, for the whole of Niger State, that it was not always that way. Uh, I think uh, sometime in 1999 or so, they had about 15,000 uh, policemen, policemen for Niger State. But now, today, for the same area, does not shrunk in size. Uh, we understand Niger State is really vast, about a cent of Nigeria's uh, landmass. Land and we have 4,000 policemen to look after the entire place. And part of the problem are the politicians. If a governor has 100 policemen, mobile policemen safeguarding him alone, what about the commissioners? Every other person there. So we will need to start looking at providing security for everybody. Let those who are supposed to do it, let them go and do their job. A situation where the governor carries a chunk of police to safeguard only him does not make sense. 
Is he the one who carries it, though? That's what he's given. Uh, well, if he's the if he's the if he's the the chief security officer, as they call them, he's the chief security officer of the state, and there is a state, uh, state security council, and he said he needed these house to be secure, this one to be secure. They will provide security, but then it is time for us to rethink provision of security to people in Nigeria, those who are who have money, have mobile policemen attached to them. In my center, we advocated one thing. Let us withdraw all these guys, 36, 40,000 of them, retrain them, and give each state 1,000 mobile policemen. These 1,000 are meant for security of that area. So you, you find a situation where the military now moves back a little bit, and you have crack policemen now working. Let the average beat policemen go to the urban centers and live among the communities so that people have somebody to report to. A situation where there is nobody to talk to when there is a crisis, meaning somebody else will have to. You can't avoid, there is no vacuum in, war, in the world. If you are not doing your job, somebody else will take over. And that's what the bandits are doing. Nobody's providing security within the community, so they've done that. And in doing it, they collect taxes. But one thing people need to realize is when you keep on paying these guys, it will get to a point where life becomes very, very unbearable under them. It had happened in Colombia, it had happened in Sri Lanka, anywhere where these things had manifested. They tended to be very, very unbearable at the end of the day. Twenty twenty two showed from very early on that it was going to be a political year, as it was a year the political parties were to determine who would be the flag bearer for the different elective seats in twenty twenty three. The climax of the primaries was the election of the presidential flag bearers. Very early on, different aspirants began to market quite vigorously reasons why their party members should vote them. Hard copy, hosted former Senate President and Secretary to the Government of the Federation, Pius Ayim, who was asking that the Southeast be given a chance to produce the president. If zoning should be within the party, the last election we ran was in 2019. The party came out clearly to zone to the north, and nobody from the south ran. So, acting within the party, the last was to the north, the next should be to the south. Simple. But the northern candidate did not win. Must you win? Is it, uh, <laughs> must you win? You must not win. Why did the party zone to the north last time? Because. They opened the system, uh, the, the circumstances at the time, and uh, it was the turn of the north, and return to the north. So this time around, you are arguing that it is the turn of the south. Sure. Regardless of whether or not a southern president wins, are you saying that the next time, uh, because we also know that there is this two-term thing. Usually, if one person is able to take it, there is usually that respect. Uh, the ticket is usually offered to the incumbent. So for the sake of argument. Yeah, we are not talking about the tenor. So because you merge rotation with the constitutional provision. The Constitution allows, allows a, a, a candidate to run for two terms. Indeed. Uh, so if you are to run for two terms constitutionally, the rotation applies after you are two tenor. And let us also be conscious of the fact that we are part of this system. In 2015, it is largely argued, and maybe rightly so, that PDP lost the election because it was the turn of the North and it didn't return to the North. 
and everybody across board now rose to it. And uh, the president then, in his good nature, realizing in the interest of the country that if that was a mistake, okay, I'm not struck, I'm not going to quarrel over it. And he congratulated the, the next president. Everybody, including in our party, was conscious of the fact that it was the turn of the north. He was unsuccessful in his bid to clinch his party's ticket, but seems to have moved on. The major political parties would wish that many of the aspirants on their platform would be like him, but that isn't the case as they still seem to be dealing with the fallouts of their primaries, a situation which could play a part in deciding their fortunes at the polls. Analysts were on hand to help us dissect this. By what standards are those primaries successful? I'm a candidate to get a for my pay over 10 million, that excludes the bulk of Nigerians, not less than 99% of Nigerians. Uh, to get involved, delegates are procured, and I hear money, further funds are expended in that regard. To that extent, what you've done have been issue is to set an extremely high bar, in which case, if it's government of the people, then it can only be government of the people who can pay. That's not democracy because that further element is not part of the definition of democracy. Then also you look but at- But isn't it expected that if you're going to be contesting for something as high as office of the president of the land, you should be a man of certain standing? Oh, certainly. The standing is in the level of knowledge. Awolowo was a great leader, so was Madubelo, so was Zeke, so was Balewa, so was Okpara. Their standing was their capacity to lead. They understood development, they understood leadership, they understood the nature of their people. They understood that we had a multi-ethnic and multi-religious society, and so they were disposed to tolerance. Those are the things missing. So the criterion they put on the table is cash. And cash is never a defining quality of anything, except somebody who wants to eat. A glutton with a lot of money can only eat. He can't help the environment. He won't even plant in order to eat. So taking it around to the issue of the democracy thing, the point is this. Only those who could pay have come on board. I think it's probably too late for APC. Um, there's already a southern candidate, and the rotation is between northern, north and south. And it doesn't, there's no way you're going to want to have a southeast president for a south, a vice president for a southwest vice president. That would not fit into the equation. But for the PDP, the possibility is still there. Atiku is president. Is the, the presidential candidate, so he can pick advisedly from the southeast. Uh, but there are several variables at play. If you think about that election, it wasn't won by Atiku. It was won by Wike. Why do I say so? Tambuwal's vote plus that of Atiku enabled them beat Wike by 200 votes, more or less. So Wike on his own, despite the numbers he lost, got 270-something. So for some, it's a good argument for him to be vice president, or at least somebody who will recommend. I said it from day one. Yes. Because I have had a little bit of idea of how Peter moved out of PDP and became a Labour Party candidate from his cycle. And I have walked to the Congress. From day one, I said the problem will be who will be what in this partnership. They are very similar. They are literally a mirror image of each other. Even in their uh, governorship history, is similar. Concourse have not really allowed himself to be messed up in matters of the state and governance. 
like we are witnessing in Kano today. A lot of scandal here, a lot of scandal here, a lot of scandal here. He hasn't allowed his family to get into governance and cause a lot of ripples in terms of how accountability management is discussed like we have today in Kano. So because he has done that, he can come out and say, I have an idea of how to get Nigeria out of its problem. And he can be believed, just like Peter Obi. But because it's not about age or it's about seniority, like Ekwemi was to Shagari, it is time for us to reciprocate and then partner with Peter Obi to heal the country, to move the country forward, and to have a more progressive change platform that can shift the country away from the normal politics we are used to. What I said is, who is going to sit with them? Mm. Who is going to broker this partnership? Because on their own, I can tell you, Peter will not step down for Konkosu. Neither will Konkosu step down for Peter Obi. Their history is very clear to me. But a broker... Some form of group, elders, northern elders, southern elders, Nigerian interest group, any interest group that have the respect that these people can give will bring them together in the interest of Nigeria and put them together. In that case, we will have a very interesting contest. Whatever the outcome of the polls in 2023, peace should remain the watchword. The presidential candidates of all the political parties were made to sign an agreement to this effect. But with no teeth to bite, we ask how effective will this be? People can be held accountable and should be held accountable. The question is, who holds them accountable? Mm. Is it the mandate of the Peace Committee? I think to that extent, we could be doing too much. There are enough agencies and institutions at the local government level, at the state level, at the national level that have already been mandated by the Constitution to hold people to account. Yeah, but realistically speaking, is it, will you say it is realistic to actually say that, you know, if violence occurs in any area, at any campaign event, at, it, they were going to be holding candidates responsible. Is it, re, is it a realistic expectation? I think that's the question I I'm think, trying to I pose. think for me it's idealistic. It's idealistic. Realistically, looking at the structure and the way Nigeria is, is really very challenging. Yeah. Security agencies are overstretched with all kinds of problems of insecurity that are already existing. Mm. And these campaigns are already taking place within the context of existing insecurity of different forms and types. And that's why even INEC has struggled with establishing you know, the, the Electoral Offenses, Offenses Commission and all that. So idealistically, it is supposed to be. Realistically, it's very, very you know, challenging. But for us at the Peace Committee, we hope that the accord can be used you know, as a piece of evidence mm -hmm. in the court of law during judicial processes. And that even members of the Peace Committee could be called to testify if things really get bad. And I think that is the contribution, you know, uh, we can make. We have enough agencies within the country that have been empowered by law to take action. Mm -hmm. And that's why when we collate and we get all the evidence and the data, we hand them over to INEC and to other agencies that are responsible for enforcing the law. You're watching a summary of hard copy for the year 2022. While politics dominated the space for most of the year, its outcomes on matters of governance were mixed.
A constitutional amendment process long in the offing continued this year with disappointing outcomes for women folk as five bills meant to bridge the gender gap in politics and affirm the rights of women in their social standing were rejected by the National Assembly. The lead proponent of the bill shared her disappointment with us. I believe that uh, it's very difficult to have a clear understanding of what happened because all of us, we were shocked to the extent that we lost our balance because the truth is you can't understand why your colleagues who co-sponsored bills, who saw the bills through first reading, second reading, and even during public hearings, there were no dissent, should come on the day of voting and vote against all those five bills. And so I do not know how anybody or any of us can fathom exactly what transpired. But we, we are trying to uh, put piece and piece together to investigate exactly what went wrong. And I kept saying, and I've said this in several uh, forums, that I do not know the voices that spoke on March 1st. I believe there were several voices that spoke and that's the only thing I can tell you that we are, we were, we are invest investigating whose voices were those. When you say we, who are the we investigating? We, the uh, uh, female parliamentarians and the he for she honorable colleagues, because I can tell you that if by that first vote and we got 80 something votes and we are just starting, and then if you minus it, <laughs> over 50 men voted for it. And I stand here to commend those brilliant, um, responsible, good men that voted for it. And very early on in the year, the NDLEA made it very clear that it will be one agency to look out for with the arrest and detention and now prosecution of former top cop Abakiari on drug trafficking and other related offences charges. We caught up with the chairman of the agency, retired Brigadier General Buba Marwa, during the year. Why do we have this prevalence? What's happening? Why is it three times the global average? And what is peculiar? First, you have to look at the Nigerian population and some of the causative factors. Chief of which is, uh, I must say, poverty is one of the drivers of drug use. And this doesn't apply only to Nigeria. Mm -hmm. This is international in scope. As a student in Pittsburgh in the 80s, I attended University of Pittsburgh, I remember um, Hill District. Each time I pass, you see these black boys and girls just sitting outside doing nothing, doing a... Uh, drugs out of idleness and, and poverty. So poverty is very important. You, you get frustrated, you are not sure of your next meal, um, you are angry, miserable, and you look for escape. That's one of the areas. Then family, family issues. When you have distended family life, 
There's no love from the parents, you're on your own. Off you go, you go into drugs. In the schools, peer pressure. Sometimes um, your colleagues demonstrate to you that you are nobody. You are not part of, you know, you have to be part of us. This is the in thing. They do it. Out of curiosity, you also have those who just experiment. But if people are perceiving that the risk associated with the use of drugs are lower, let me give you the instance of cannabis. Um, the issue of, around uh, perception and the issue around um, how we used to see um, drug, and, and I think drug abuse containing it has evolved over time. Can Nigeria really be an island in terms of how uh, the, the evolution of this particular drug is being perceived around the world? No. Um, cannabis recognition uh, in the world as a legal tender is on the low side. Is on the low side. Uh, in, the, uh, in the CND, the Commission on Narcotics Drug, in December 2020, they had this meeting on deleting cannabis from one of the schedules. By the end of the day, countries have to protect their own interests. There are 11 African countries that are on the CND. Only two approve that deletion. Nine others, including Nigeria, refused. Take Nigeria. 10.6 million Nigerians are taking drugs. The moment you say you're going to lift uh, the lead and make it legal tender, you can be sure that in another year, we'll probably double that number. As this year wraps up, one controversial bill which had caused rancor in the 7th and 8th assemblies has come up again for reconsideration in the 9th assembly. It's the Water Resources Bill. The lawmaker who brought it up said controversial bits of the bill had now been taken out after consultations with state governors. We caught up with one of the lawmakers who continues to raise objection to the passage of the bill on what his reservations are. What are the fundamental issues? It says that it wants to, in Section 2, vest the use, the control of the use of interstate surface and groundwater onto the federal government. Now, let me tell you the implication of that. We're talking about surface and groundwater, mm -hmm. even water under the ground. Now, how can you justify that? What exactly is interstate water? Because each water body traverses the boundaries of a state. Mm -hmm. What we should be looking at is how to regulate the use of water within the states in okay. a way, because, and that is what is already provided for under the uh, uh, concurrent in the second schedule, mm -hmm. section 16, 13B or so, talks about the, the, the National Assembly and the federal government being able to control the damming of water sources that traverse the states. That is reasonable, so that you don't just wake up as a state government and dam exactly. a river. So this bill is seeking to start to give us licenses for use of water resources. And in this regard, it is important to point out what the alarming provision of this bill is with what is considered to be these waterways. 
And finally, although we had spoken with him at the very start of the year, we find his message apt as we close out the year. Sheikh Nuruddin Lemu had spoken words of encouragement and joining us to do our little bit as we seek a better Nigeria and never to give up hope. In these times, um, optimism is very difficult, uh, but as people of faith, we never lose hope. We recognize that after hardship, there is relief. We recognize that we have not been sent to heaven. This is earth. It is not hell, thank God. It may feel like it sometimes, but this is where we exercise our agency as human beings, as people of faith, to make the world a better place. It's not that people don't have problems, but you also have to recognize there are others who are in much greater need. And it's true we have serious insecurity in Nigeria, but it's nowhere as bad as it is in South Africa. It's not as bad as it is in Mexico or Guatemala or Colombia. Um, yes, we have problems, but we must recognize that other places, firstly, other places are bad, but we have to do what we can to improve. And yes, some people feel honestly they can't bear it. I think God does not put a burden on somebody that is greater than that which they can bear. Indeed, no matter what happens in the following year, do endeavor to keep your little candle shining brightly. Well, that's where we leave it for 2022. Thank you for being a great part of our year. It's been a pleasure serving you. I'm Mark Bergun Yusuf. On behalf of the team here at Hard Copy, thank you once more and have a happy new year.